Good evening. Well, I, with my Scottish accent, there's a couple of waivers I have to give in the beginning. One is that I sometimes I'm told I speak too fast, and then the way I speak sometimes is hard to discern, and then what I speak about is even harder to discern. So between the three, I don't mean to give you the ministry of confusion. Uh, I am a Scotsman, not an Irishman. The difference with the Scots and the Irish was articulated many years ago by the, the difference between uh, Murphy's Law, you know, because the Irish have Murphy's Law, which those of you who work with technology know, know what I'm talking about. If anything can go wrong, it will go wrong, yes. Well, the Scots, of course, have McDonald's Law, which says that Murphy was an optimist. <laughs> so it says something more about the national temperament. Now, tonight, as we dive into a subject that's very heavy, I'm going to be very ambitious, and you'll probably notice that by your notes. You're going to get um, a lot of material here, which I will do my best to cover in this time, where I'm going to try to pitch for you the historical and the rise of the, uh, the Islamic movement and some of the beliefs, not, not specifically zeroing in some of the beliefs, but also some of the implications of the beliefs as they've taken shape in the world. And I think that will segue us down, right down to when David then will pick up uh, specifically focusing in on the nation of Iran and uh, an example of what God is doing both in that part of the world and in Iran in particular. But uh, I hope I, this I can uh, do that in the time allotted. So if you fasten your seatbelts. You have fairly cool Notes, so I hope you'll be able to follow that. Now, uh, a friend of ours, Sam Solomon, uses an illustration that I liked once a lot. He says that many people uh, sometimes look at life in terms of a, a great, they look at life, say like a big, imagine a big square, and in the midst of the square you put a dot, and that is the way we view our religious life. So there would be, life would be a great big, almost like a square, and there would be a dot in the middle of the square, and that would be your, your religious life. For the Muslim, the, the view is completely reversed. All of life must be viewed in terms of the totality of the great, great big picture, and the dot would be your life. And so the totality of the backdrop frames the, uh, the importance to people of what counts in, in their existence. Now, we have to understand that Islam is a worldview, and we have to think in terms of worldviews. What is a worldview? How does a worldview op operate? A worldview is not just what we have. A worldview is what we see with. So when a person is in a worldview, it's their entire way of seeing and interpreting reality. It's how their emotions are fired. It's what they think about. It's what they think with. It's how they interpret the whole of existence. Here's a, a, a comment uh, from uh, Norman Geisler and Abdul Salib speaking about the rise of Islam. Now, some of these figures need to be a little bit updated since they wrote this, but he said, Islam has rapidly grown to become the second largest religion in the world with almost one billion adherents, nearly one in five persons on earth. In the U.S., there are presently more Muslims than Methodists. That figure's actually more like 1.4 billion uh, these days. But there are more Muslims than Methodists. In fact, uh, David may refer to this, in, in England today, you'll often find more, there are more practicing uh, Muslims in Britain than there are many evangelicals in the country. And particularly when you go to certain parts of the country, uh, you can see the rise of mosques and the growth of Islam in the country for many reasons, demographic reasons and all kinds of other factors. But as the church has been waning often in its evangelistic and mission impulse, there has been the growth through demographics and, and relationship and all kinds of things that have affected this transition. Now, I think it's fair to say, I'm a visitor to your country, although I've lived here for 10 years, that most Americans, Christians and non-Christians, didn't think much about Islam before 9-11. I don't mean they didn't think much about it in terms of its value or anything like that. I mean, they just didn't think about anything about it at all. It was not on the radar. It was over there somewhere. It was somewhere out in the other part of the world, and it had no reference or relevance to us. And perhaps we were all living in the world of rapid globalization, 
We're the prophets of free market uh, economics and democracy. We believed that we, this was growing into a global system, that hearts were being won to a great grand liberal vision. And perhaps the uh, beliefs and, and uh, uh, the commitment to God was waning globally to some degree. At least some prophets of this uh, believed that. But when you look on the literature of globalization, you notice that there was something that was being missed totally in globalization studies. We were not taking account of the demographics of the world, where the population growth was occurring. They were not dealing with massive historical resentments that were festering in various parts of the world. They were not taking account of new communication technologies on the negative side. It wasn't just all positive, everybody can have an iPod and be wired for sound and whatever. There were other dimensions to this. There was also, they were not paying attention to the revived attention to ancient historical beliefs and sources that were beginning to, you know, uh, foster renewal movements in many countries around the world. And of course, they were not paying attention to the implication of some of the decisions that U.S. policy was going to have around the world in, in the long term. But there was a seething cauldron of resentment and frustration had been brewing. And instead of integration and interdependence, there were people that thought that religion would be consigned to the dustbin of history, or that basically through privatization, things would just, religion would fade away. There are people in America today who believe the same thing, that eventually if we all get more educated, if we get more money, if we get more smart, I mean, Richard Dawkins, Daniel Dennett, the latest prophets of the secular vision who are reviving old arguments into the public square, they think that religion will eventually fade away. In the midst of this sort of idea of this global liberal humanistic vision stood the presence of Islam, which had been around for a long time. And the Muslim community and the Muslim voice has said a resounding no to that version of globalization, not buying it at all. Here's an, another uh, uh, quote from uh, Norman Geisler and uh, Abdul Salib. Islam claims to be the true religion for humankind. It affirms that Muhammad is the seal of the prophets, the last, the final, the greatest. Uh, of all prophets who superseded all prophets before him, including Jesus. The Quran is believed to be the verbally inspired word of God, dictated to Muhammad by the angel Gabriel from the eternal original in heaven. It is said to contain the full and final revelation of God, surpassing and completing all previous revelations. So it basically covers the Bible, the New Testaments and Old Testaments. It surpasses them. It completes them. And anything that's in the Quran that contradicts them, therefore they are wrong because the Quran is the final and full revealed word of God. Now, in this session, I'm going to try to do three things if I've got time. Uh, to, one, to chart the birth of Islam and the role of the Prophet Muhammad in it. Secondly, the rise of the movement and its rapid growth because it did grow extraordinarily rapidly. And thirdly, the collision with Christendom and the ongoing tension between two global missionary faiths. So we'll jump in here. The birth of Islam. And let's remember the word Muslim is one who submits. A Muslim, there are plenty of Muslim people who love God and love Allah, particularly more in the Sufi tradition. But the idea fundamentally of a Muslim is one who simply submits. Allah is not necessarily a being to be known. He is simply the God, the power of the universe who is there, and you submit to him. The whole system of Muslim theology, philosophy, and religious life is summed up in these seven words. La ilaha illa Allah Muhammad Rasul Allah. There is no God but Allah, and Muhammad is Allah's apostle. Now, having said that tonight, I think I can say honestly, I am not a Muslim, but having made the confession, some people who think I was, that's the shahada, the confession but these are the central issues in Islam, is the existence of the one God, a singularity, the unique God. 
the prophetic call and the role of the prophet Muhammad, and then the giving of the Quran. These are the three cornerstones, if you like, that bring us into uh, uh, the issues that we need to look to. We can't understand Islam unless we understand the central shaping role of the prophet Muhammad and his towering figure. So let's talk a little, we'll give you a little bit of the, the story. Now, I know that some of you have read up on this. You've probably uh, read a few books, so some will be familiar. For, for others, it will be the first time. So I just ask you, if you know this already, bear with us as we run through some of these things, because they're important to the overall narrative. His birth and his youth. Muhammad was born into the Hashim family of the powerful tribe of the Quraysh around AD 570 in Mecca, which was a great city of commerce in the Arabian Peninsula. His father, Abdullah, passed away before his son's birth, and his mother, Amina, died when he was only six years old. Now, he was taken care of by his influential grandfather, Abd al-Mutalib, who died when Muhammad was eight. He was then put under the care of his, lo his loving uncle, Abu Talib. Now, you don't have to do an exam at the end and memorize all the names. You don't get extra points or take off if you don't get that as you go out. Now, there is a group, there's a massive volume of literature on uh, the life of Muhammad, not just in the Quran, but also in the collection of the Hadith. And there are four groupings of these, amounting to hundreds of thousands of sayings that were collected by people who have heard sayings that the Prophet was claimed to have said, or a friend said that he said, or one of the authorities closest to him. So you get a lot of literature that, that then forms around It's not necessarily directly in the Quran. And here's the, from the, one of the, uh, Muhammad's earliest uh, biographer, Ibn Ashaq, said this, according to a legend, a host of angels joyously attended his birth. As soon as the infant was born, he fell to the ground, took a handful of dust and gazed towards heaven, proclaiming, God is great. He was born clean, circumcised, and his navel cord already cut. That was very convenient. <laughs> now, as far as we know, he lived a relatively normal childhood with, it, with the exception, according to Islamic tradition, that he was spared from participating in the pagan lives of the Arabs. Now, that's very important for the later story. Because the, the, the Arab tribes gathered often around the Kaaba and they were involved in all kinds of polytheistic worship. And one of the central issues, of course, in Muhammad's life was the call back to the singularity of the worship of the one God. So even though Muhammad is raised according to the tradition, he was untouched by this pagan life, so he was kept pure. So his marriage and his adult life. Having conducted a successful caravan trade to Syria for the wealthy widow, widow Khadija, at the age of 25, he accepted her proposal of marriage. She was 15 years his senior, but their marriage seems to have been a pretty happy one. They had two sons who died in infancy and four daughters. Now, it seems that Muhammad seems to have been a pious uh, soul, and he was very disturbed about the paganism and the idolatry of, of, of his times. It was said that he used to go to Mount Hira and have these kind of a meditation and retreats, uh, obviously a spiritual man, and he would meditate in peace and silence. And if any of you have ever been to, I know some of you are from that part of the world, but if you've ever been to uh, the Middle East or you've ever been to the desert, there's nothing quite like going out into the desert at night. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, nothing quite like going out during the day, but it's a little bit hot, as you can imagine. But I remember being out there once uh, just outside um, Dubai, and we'd gone 20, 30 miles out. And uh, we were standing, and of course, we'd been there all day, and you look at the dunes and the sand, and it's just truly awesome, like, looking like a sea of sand. But then as night descends, and you see the stars, and you feel the power of the clear skies, unpolluted by light, it's a very tremendous sense of awe. And I can imagine a spiritual person just being very touched and very moved by what was going on and what he's seen in there. During this time, he receives his prophetic call, A.D. 610, when he was 40 years of age. He believed that he received his prophetic call through the angel Gabriel. 
Now, I'm going to give you a lengthy quote here. This is from Ibn Ishaq, the, the first recorded bio, or official biography, which was written several hundred years after Muhammad's death. But listen to these words, because this is central to the story and to what happens in Islam. When it was the night on which God honored him with his mission and showed mercy on his servants thereby, Gabriel brought him the command of God. He came to me, said the apostle of God, while I was asleep with a coverlet of brocade whereon was some writing and said, read. I said, what shall I read? He pressed me with it so tightly that I thought it was death. Then he let me go and said, read. I said, what shall I read? He pressed me with it again so that I thought it was death. Then he let me go and said, read. I said, what shall I read? He pressed me with it the third time so that I thought it was death and said, read. I said, what shall I read? And this I said only to deliver myself from him, lest he should do the same to me again. He said, read in the name of thy Lord who created, who created man of blood coagulated. Read. Thy Lord is the most beneficent, who taught by the pen, taught that which they knew not unto men. So I read it, and he departed from me. And I awoke from my sleep, and it was as though these words were written on my heart. Now, at first, apparently, according to the biography, he's unsure. He doesn't know what it is that's happened. He's heard this voice. He's, had this, he's, he's got this revelation given to him, but he doesn't know the source. Was this a jinn, a spirit, a demon that's been speaking to him? So he's afraid. So he goes back to his wife, Khadijah, and he tells her the story. She relates the story to a Christian, and we don't know what this means, but a Christian cousin, Waraka, who, upon hearing the story, is convinced that God has spoken to him truly and that he's one of the prophets. So she confirms that this is some kind of prophetic revelation which confirms him that God is speaking to him. But then he gets a time of silence. And it's a time of confusion because all of a sudden God is not speaking. And for three years there's a time of silence and doubt and despair. He's not sure, was this God speaking to me or not? But then after the three years, God begins to speak to him again. He receives more revelations, but now he comes back with more authority with a sense of being a warner to the people, calling them to submit to God and to trust in the one true God. Now, in Bell's introduction to the Quran, uh, W.M. Watt says this, Muhammad is the mouthpiece of the divine will, which is communicated to him by Gabriel. And thus, like a confidential official, he stands on the borderline between the king's court and the subjects. Subject, he is always. Sometimes he receives messages to convey to the people or receives commands or exhortations intended for them. Sometimes he's directly addressed as the representative of the people, or he receives commands and exhortations intended for them. And at other times, a special exhortations and directions for his own conduct are addressed to him. And at times, he steps, as it were, across the line and facing round upon the people, conveys the divine commands and exhortations directly to them. Now, if you're interested in this, by the way, there's a, a book that's quite hard to get by an Iranian journalist who was actually disappeared or murdered, a man by the name of Ali Dashti. But his book, 23 Years, A Study of the Prophetic Career of Muhammad, is a very interesting book to read. Uh, and you can still get it on the internet, Amazon, if you're interested. So let's talk about the rise and the rapid growth of the movement. From the beginning of his prophetic call, major resistance was encountered from the majority of the powerful and influential Meccans. Muhammad challenged the existing beliefs. He was challenging the entrenched idol worship around the Kaaba. And so he was seen as a threat. But he was also considered to be from a common background. He had no status. He had no great honor. And so who was this man who was speaking up? He had no right to challenge the status quo. 
And so, of course, persecution and tension mounted. By the way, I could give you a sub-point on this, but I won't uh, digress too much. The Kaaba in later Islamic thought was said to be the primal original house of worship directly under the one in heaven, built by Adam, which was then corrupted and then reconstructed by Abraham and Ishmael later on. But that's a whole other story, and that comes additional sort of thickening as life moved on. So he lost, things begin to happen in Muhammad's life. Things are beginning to change, both in his personal circumstances and in his social circumstances. In AD 619, he lost his wife Karija and his staunch but unbelieving protector, Abu Talib. So now he's really under threat. Now this is when several events take place that on the Islamic calendar, the Muslim calendar, are very significant. And the first of these was the journey to heaven. Uh, and Muhammad is, is taken on a journey on a, a white, winged white horse. You may have seen pictures in, in uh, various art forms of Muhammad riding the white horse where he's taken to, to heaven to get a vision. And uh, of the three most holy sites in Islam, Medina, Mecca, and Jerusalem are these three sites. Now, according to tradition, the, the prophet Gabriel takes him from Mecca to Jerusalem, and then he ascends through the seven heavens where he, he visits all the previous prophets. So he's, he's taken on a tour of heaven. He goes past all the various prophets. But all the Bibli- There's about 124,000 or 126,000. Can't remember the number, but something like that. He visits all these different prophets. And he's there to receive from God a specific instruction about prayer. Because in the Islamic world, prayer becomes very central to the worship of Allah. And he's, he's given the, the, the new direction of prayer is not to be towards Jerusalem, but it's to be towards Mecca from now on. So Muhammad knows that they're to pray 17 cycles of prayer five times a day. The duty of Muslim, every Muslim must pray at least five times a day. And he comes back after having seen Adam and John and Jesus and Idris, who's Enoch, Aaron, Moses, and, uh, and he descends back down. Now, obviously, he comes back with having had this mystical experience. And those who doubt him now doubt him even more. I mean, who saw the white horse? Who saw him fly? Who saw him ascend into heaven? There's only his word of testimony to this. So this increases the persecution against him. But pilgrims from Medina, he's beginning to get a crowd of followers who do believe in him. And so the Medinans invite him to come for refuge. He signs a pledge of allegiance with them and a promise of defense, and he moves. And by the way, the ascent, the point in which he ascent was supposed to have ascended to heaven for the vision is the site of the Al-Aqsa Mosque today in Jerusalem, which plays a very significant feature, as you know, at the present time. So it's not just in these past days. The second then event is what we call the Hijra, the flight. There was a plan underway to assassinate Muhammad, but having sent his followers in small groups to Medina, Muhammad and his close companion Abu Bakr successfully reached Medina. They escape those who are trying to kill them, and they get there in AD 622. Now this is, in, in, in Islamic thinking, this is huge in terms of their calendar, their understanding of events. And you must remember, these are people who think in terms of history and a narrative. They're thinking in a story. They're thinking in symbols. They're thinking in all kinds of things that help shape and frame how they see reality. This journey was a monumental turning point in the development of Islam. As the Shorter Encyclopedia of Islam points out, the migration of the Prophet has been with justice taken by the Muslims as the starting point of their chronology, for it forms the first stage in a movement which in a short time became of significance in the history of the world. So what happened when Muhammad went to Medina? There were several things that took place. According to Geisler and Salib, whereas in Mecca he was for the most part a purely religious figure, 
In Medina, he immediately became an able diplomat and politician. He had clearly had negotiating skills. He was able to unite. He was able to negotiate. He was able to get people to come together. But he had a primary vision, which was to, to unify the various tribes, including the various Jewish clans which were spread around. But he failed with them. He wanted to bring the Jewish tribes. And remember, this is the Middle East, the West is in the post-Byzantium world, or it's still the Byzantium world, but Christianity is spreading. There's Gnostic sects. There's, there's all kinds of, of interaction of people coming and going. And in the midst of that, uh, there are many, the Jewish tribes are spread out as well. He thought because of his monotheism, they would unite with him and accept him as a prophet, but they didn't. And of course, that would have massive implications later on. Perhaps due to Jewish resistance, we see increased criticism of the Jews. You can see that in Surah 9.29 and Surah 98.6, where there's a shift in focus also to Abraham as the central figure in the history of Islam. We also know a manifest shift in Islamic theology towards a more Arabian character in its field. Now, one of the contentious issues comes up and comes on, are all Muslims violent? Of course not. There are hundreds of millions of people who would never want to do violence, wouldn't do anything ugly to their neighbor and wouldn't want to. They're not like that at all. But does Islam, Islam marked often by the, the, the presence of the sword? The answer to that would have to be yes, also, right from the very beginning. And so let's just look at this, the role of the sword. The movement needed sustenance, and the Meccan caravans offered a rich source of potential booty. I mean, after all, if you're living in the desert and you don't have any source of resources, the best way to go is just go take it from your neighbor. And that was the common, fairly common practice of the time. Now, there was concern, though, because like fighting around all through the centuries, fighting has often been regulated by rules and order. You know, even the British, when they came here, didn't have the sense to hide behind the trees. The Americans taught them that afterwards. Something we learned as time went on, because we thought there were rules to the fighting, you see? But uh, anyway, that's a, sub, that's a subtext. <laughs> Mohammed is beginning to get backlash because these, they're going out and they're raiding caravans and some of the, 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 the tribesmen are saying, you, we're forbidden on our religious and other laws from doing that. At this moment in time, God speaks. So God speaks to them and this is what he says. Fighting is prescribed for you and you dislike it, but it's possible that you dislike a thing which is good for you, but God knoweth and ye know not. They asked thee concerning fighting in the prohibited month. This is the pagan Arabs believed that four of the months of the year were sacred according to the lunar calendar, and Muslims had attacked a caravan during that sacred month. That was the issue. Say fighting therein is a grave offense, but graver is it in the sight of God to prevent access to the path of God, to deny him, to prevent access to the sacred mosque and drive out its members. Tumult and oppression are worse than slaughter. So as Muhammad needs to get, obviously, well, we don't know what he needed to get, but certainly he got a revelation at that point in time that authorized him to authorize them in God's name to carry on and take the plundering ahead at that particular point. Now, there are specific conquests, just like if you're, you're Christian, and probably many of you are here Christians tonight, you read the Bible, you read the great battles in the Old Testament, you can read about David and Goliath, and you know that. In Muslim history, they also have their stories, including these ones, by the way, which are often incorporated. But here are some of the significant ones. The Battle of Badir, which took place in March 624. The Muslims met a superior force. They were outnumbered three to one. They triumphed, and they took this as a sign of God's pleasure, and the victory therefore elevated Muhammad's status. So score one was a victory that convinced or gave the divine authority. But then a year later was the Battle of Ahud. And a year after Badir, a second battle ensued. And this time they were defeated. But this was seen only as an initial setback, perhaps a time of chastening. And then the siege of Medina. The Meccans now realized the threat that Muhammad and the Muslims posed. 
And in AD 627, Abu Sufyan led a great Arab confederacy of 10,000 men against the Muslims of Medina. The attack failed, and one result was an attack on the last Jewish community in Medina, where most of the men were killed, the wives were sold off, and, uh, uh, well, that, that's, you can read that on your own time. That's not a particularly joyous event. But then we come then to the, what is really the triumph at this point, which is the conquest of Mecca. In January 630, Muhammad, with an army of 10,000 men, invaded his beloved city of Mecca with virtually no resistance. And his first act was to cleanse the Kaaba of its idols. And with only a few exceptions, he promised a general pardon to all of the leaders of Mecca. So after Mecca surrendered, a large number of the tribes in the Arabian Peninsula began to see that the, the handwriting is on the wall. He's united the tribes. It's good for them to come together. There's a solidity in numbers. It makes sense. And so they pledge their allegiance. They join the prophet after many of them have their, having been defeated by the Muslim ar- armies. And Geisler and Salib put it this way, it is certainly one of the Muhammad's greatest accomplishments that he was able to incorporate all the many Arab tribes into one powerful nation under the banner of Islam. In 632, Muhammad personally led the pilgrimage to Mecca and delivered his farewell address. Three months later, in 632, at the age of 63, he died a sudden but natural death. And thus begins the story from our side. Because you've got to remember the context. You've already got one global missionary faith that has just been launched in the, through the resurrection of Jesus, the giving of the Holy Spirit, the coming of, 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 of God's movement into the, the Jewish people, the Christ, Christianity has been born and is spreading out and has been spreading for hundreds of years along this area. Now, a second, if you like, global movement is born in the same region, not saying for the same reasons or with the same authentication, but in the same uh, area. And you can expect that there's going to be a collision from the very early days on. Now, Muhammad had barely died when it wasn't initially the collision with outsiders. There was the collision within. The rivalry for power moved into high gear. The internal conflicts within Islam dominated the years following the Prophet's death and led to the major divide between the Sunni, which is the majority of Muslims around the world, and the Shiites uh, in, as dividing into the two biggest uh, groupings. And, of course, the Shiites would be represented today largely in Iran, but also in uh, Lebanon and other parts of the Middle East. And Saudi Arabia would be almost the, sort of the center of the Sunni uh, uh, domination of the Middle East, although it spreads out, of course, further than that. So the, the issue uh, then revolved around who is the true successor? Now that Muhammad's God, where does the authority lie? How do we uh, pass on the rule and authority? And that became a, a, po- a point of serious issue. Many believed that the prophet had, it must be the prophet's direct bloodline descent. So it was from his bloodline, from his children, that could come the line. So it must be a bloodline, and there would be authority in that line. Others believed, no, we are a community, and we must elect. The Sunnis believed in the election. The Shiites believed in the bloodline descent. And, of course, that, as you know, is raging in various uh, forms of combat to the present time. Now, what I wanted to do at this point is jump into, to show you some of the initial clash. As I travel around, I try to read in various different kinds of literature. And when I was down in India, uh, one of the times that we, we were doing there, and, and was speaking mainly to Hindu audiences, but I picked up this book by an Indian journalist because the Deobandi school in the north of, of India has been one of the very extreme forms of Islam in training Islamic missionaries. So there was a, there was a, a book there written by this man, M.J. Um, Akbar, called The Shade of Swords. And it was in the, the bookstore at the airport, so I picked it up, and it was a thoroughly interesting read. And he was trying to, this is just after 9-11, so he as a, as a, a Muslim culturally, as a journalist, so there's a secular dimension to the man, as a global traveler, he wants to put his kind of a 
overlay on the events of that just gone on. And I found some of it very interesting. Because in it, he talks about the, the roots of, of this, the struggle for jihad in the world. And he felt that this had been going on right from the beginning, particularly David against Goliath. And the role of that, that that plays in the idea that the Islamic world had become a small David struggling again against particularly the brutal Western powers with their imperial agendas and their trashing of their cultures and their dominating, of course, through the, primarily initially through the British Empire, but then as it's gone on through other Western cultures as it moved on. And he cites this, this quote from a man called Abdullah Yusuf Ali, who was giving lessons uh, for jihad. Now, this isn't the view of jihad. This is just a view. And there's, there's, there's the, the view of, of jihad where it's the struggle for personal victory and conquering. And then there's jihad, which is more the sense of, of uh, fighting against the enemies of Islam. But this is what he, what he said. And the, the, the journalist puts these up for us, and I thought it was very interesting. This is in a post-9-11 world, and it hit me at the time with some power. I don't know what it does to you, but he said, first of all, numbers do not count, but faith, determination, and the blessing of Allah. Second, size and strength are of no avail against truth, courage, and careful planning. The hero tries his own weapons and those that are available to him, and the time and place, even though people may laugh at him. If Allah is with us, the enemy's weapons may become an instrument of his own destruction. Fifthly, personality conquers all dangers and puts heart into our wavering friends. Pure faith brings Allah's reward, which may take many forms. In David's case, it was power, wisdom, and other gifts. But you look at their point three. The hero tries his own, we- takes his, tries his own weapons and those that are available to him and the time and the place, even though may people will be laughing. Number four, the enemy's weapons may become an instrument of his own destruction. And of course, that has often been the case and is today in the use of modern technology. Now, Islam was considered to be the one true faith, and therefore it was destined to overcome all enemies, no matter how big. So there was a huge issue, a huge theological issue, a cultural issue. If God is one, if Allah is the great power, and if He wants to bring His rule to the whole of the world, what has happened to the Muslim world? How come our countries are so weak? How come they are so poor? Well, obviously there must have been theological and spiritual corruption. We have been corrupted from within. That's one part of the narrative. The second fact, we have been oppressed from without. So the only way to solve this problem is to have spiritual renewal and to also then go after uh, 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 taking back and avenging the rights and wrongs, or the wrongs rather, that have been done to us over the ages. But now, if you can hold that, and I realize I'm putting a lot into your mind, let's back up to the struggle at the beginning for sacred space. Because there's always a territorial and physical aspect to Islam. Many people, this is where it's different from Christianity. Many of us as Western Christians are functionally either dualists or deists. Let me explain. We believe in a God who winds everything up into motion, sits in the heavens, and we go about our our business doing our own daily life. And God has very little relevance to many of us in terms of our practical obedience, our lifestyles, our values, and what we do. Islam doesn't understand things that way. It sees things spatio-physically, everything that I do, whether I go to the bathroom, my sexual relationships, how I manage my money, the way I wash, the way I dress, everything that I do has some prescription that describes the totality of my existence. And so space is very important. Space, physical space, becomes the territory of God's rule. Now, right after the beginning uh, of, uh, shortly after, uh, rather, the, the beginning of the movement. The Byzantine emperor Heraclius had fought against the Persians in 622. But then in 628, Muhammad sent him a letter inviting him to accept Islam, and he rejected. Two years after the prophet's death, the Byzantines were defeated by the Muslim armies at the Battle of Ajnadain. 
In 637, Jerusalem fell to the Arabs. Now, you, this end of history, because many people follow Henry Ford and think history is bunk. But you've got to understand, this was catastrophic. In European Christendom, and I'm not justifying all that went on in the name of Christendom or these kind of things, but the holy city had been taken. All of these lands, the places where Jesus and the disciple had walked, was now under Islamic rule. That was fairly shocking to the churches, whatever kind of churches they were, back in Europe at the time. Now, why is this very significant? Because... If you're ever witnessing to a Muslim, and particularly more in the apologetic dimension, not necessarily in the one-on-one, but it will come up, one of the central sticking points, and it's justifiable, is what about the Crusades? And they're right. How could men and women, in the name of Christ, bathe themselves up to the knees in blood and cut off heads of Jews and Christians, and Eastern Christians as well, that were slaughtered? Dreadful things done in the name of Christ. But we have a massive guilt complex about this because you also have to set the Crusades into its setting, not to justify it. But please go with me a second here on the timeline. Think of this, first of all, in context as we think about the Crusades without justifying them, but just responding to the question that comes up. 653, the governor of Syria marches to the Bosphorus in the first attempt on the city of Constantinople, which I assure you, many of you know Constantinople is today's Istanbul. So this is the first attempt in 653, it doesn't work. But then from 670 to 678, there's a major assault in Constantinople. So eight years of continuing war that's eventually uh, overcome. In 688, construction of the Dome of the Rock begins. And uh, Muslims believe that this was the rock from where the prophet went to heaven when Allah took his servant to the farthest mosque, Alaska, whose precincts we did bless in order that we might show him some of our signs. Now what is is crucial though in that construction of, of the mosque there is that the inscription in the Al-Asa Mosque is not a Quranic verse about the unity of God. It's about the attack on the, uh, the Trinity. In, inside the dome is an attack, or at least a challenge, against the Trinitarian worship of God. And so uh, it, it, Allah admonishes the Christians for distorting the message of Christ. The dome of the rock is a challenge, says Akbar. The dome of the rock is a challenge to Christians to renounce the Trinity and return to monotheism and Allah. So there's construction projects going on, temples arising as you would expect, Islam is beginning to grow. Now follow the timeline here again. 722, Muslims entered Spain and gained a foothold. In the same year, they entered Sindh, which is on the Indian subcontinent. The following years were a a tale of increasing conquest, when every power seemed to crumple before the might of Islam. Muslim advances took them into Spain, then into France in 732, into Afghanistan in 870, now, it's interesting to know, and please, this is the date I wanted you to catch. When was the first crusade? It's there in your notes. 1095. Now, that doesn't justify. I'm not saying there for you, but surely in, in the context of the times, if it's thrown out carelessly about all the things that Christians had done, what happened all those hundreds of years prior to this in Islamic uh, domination of that part of the world? The, the, the control and conquering of these lands. So there was more, it was more than just a question of, of brutal crusaders racing back to, the, to uh, bathe their feet in blood. There was also provocations going on. And that doesn't justify it in any sense. But I think we need to understand that things, uh, you can see at least frame it in a different way. Now, after centuries of war, the city of Constantinople fell to the Ottoman Sultan Mehmet. And in 1453, this is a long time on now, the Holy Roman Empire of the Byzantines came to an end. And we enter into the golden era of Islam, a time of great victories and growth as the, the empire grows and manuscripts are discovered and writing takes place and people move out, trade begins. Um, 
But then in 1683, another date that's not often uh, paid much attention to, and I just throw these dates out to you because people don't pay attention. Does anyone know what happened to on 9 9-11, 9-11 was the day in Vienna, Austria, when the Turkish armies, which were almost broken into the city walls of Vienna, were turned back by a Polish army that ran to the rescue of Christendom came down from Poland and turned the Turks back and began the long turn back then through the Balkans back in towards Turkey in September the 11th, 1683. Do you think it's significant that airplanes were flown into towers on September the 11th? Dates mean something. They always have a significance in some, uh, some ideology. But uh, moving right forward to the present time, um, things began to happen. There was a slow decline. And then in November 1917, 1922, after the First World War, after the breakup of the, the, uh, the Ottoman Empire, the caliphate was abolished. Now, you can't imagine how, how absolutely catastrophic that is in a, in, to the Muslim mind. Here, for hundreds of years, there has been a unified sort of, not really, but the appearance of a unified system centered in, in Constantinople with the caliphate. But after the, the First World War and the defeat of the Turkish armies, where the, where the uh, Arab armies were supported by the British and all kinds of complex stuff in the background that probably might put you to sleep, but it was a part of history, eventually it's brought down. Kemal Ataturk ascends into uh, a secular constitution in Turkey, and the caliphate is abolished. This is only going back now to 1924, not that long ago. So about 80 odd years or so, when this, this, this sense of power was lost, and then we get into the whole 20th century, the role of the Nazis and the Cold War years and Arab nationalism and the, the two powers playing people. And for many of us, as I said, this has all been invisible. It all went underground. But ladies and gentlemen, these are hundreds and millions of human beings who were living in this part of the world. And their faith was still there. Their beliefs were still there, sometimes pushed aside, sometimes with extreme versions and all kinds of versions still functioning. But certain historical events began to happen, and things began to then take a new turn, particularly with, and we'll get probably some of this when we talk about the Iranian Revolution, when we talk about the Afghanistan War, with the arming of the Mujahideen, and all of these kind of things, where Saudi money and other things, the oil birthed an awakening because it gave money once again to, to uh, redefine or rediscover resources, to train people, to create schools and mosques and education, and to begin the missionary agenda, or at least to give it a new impulse around the world. Now, Bernard Lewis is one of the American scholars of Islam. He wrote a book a number of years ago, What Went Wrong? And here again, we're talking about the sociopolitical. And in the midst of this, let me say that uh, the church has never done very well with Islam, I feel. I hope that's not too strong of it. But in the percentage of missionaries that have gone to reach the Muslims has been very small. The amount of effort involved, the amount of prayer. You can get missionaries for almost any part of the world, but not for the Muslim world. Because it's just considered it's hard, it's difficult, it's threatening, it's dangerous. And so the vast amount of, in terms of proportion of money given and proportion of time invested, many people avoid. And perhaps that's part of the problem, why we haven't seen more things happening. Because those who have gone and those who do preach the gospel, those who have gone in church planting, have seen great things, often at high cost. And you'll probably hear more about that. But what went wrong? The tale of the decline of the roots of Muslim anger and resentment are told clearly by Bernard Lewis, amongst others. 
The loss of preeminence in the world, the experience of defeat at the hands of European powers, and the increasing awareness of technological and military superiority over Islam created deep feelings of resentment. He's referring specifically to when the Emperor Napoleon decides to go on an expedition and, and invade uh, uh, Egypt, which he does, and plunders some of their treasures. And then it takes another European power, the British, who come in, kick Napoleon out, but then steal some more treasures and take over the territory. So obviously, this, this technological, how did they get so strong? Where did this education come? Where did they get this power? These were questions that were festering under the surface. The British Empire had spread and, of course, had great ambitions. Uh, you've probably heard about that, the great game about controlling the, the, the oil, not the oil, but the treasure sources, the, the spices coming from India and the, the going back and forward towards Europe. But even in this time, there was, there was a, a backlash. And looking at the conflict with the Western powers, M.J. Akbar cites the role of Syed Jamal al-Din Afghani. Now, I want you to hear this. This is a quote written back in the 1800s to try to launch a pan-Islamic jihad against Western imperialism, and particularly against Great Britain at that time as the superpower and their imperialism. His theme became one of two contemporary relevance. What were the, t the two issues that Afghani was uh, irritated? This is a Muslim who you'd say, an Orthodox man who's studying the Quran, who's studying the Hadith, who wants to give back to the roots of his faith. And as he looks, he sees two things wrong with his culture. One, there's corruption of Islam from within. Secondly, there's infiltration of Muslim thought through the secularizing forces of the West. Ladies and gentlemen, I don't know how to say to you uh, very clearly tonight, it's naive on our part if we really believe that democracy, I, I would love to see democracy and, and, and a free market economy work around the world the way it does in some parts of the West. But it isn't going to happen. And it's not the answer. The answer to changing human hearts is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the only thing that changes men and women from the inside out. But listen to these words. He's speaking out against Muslim Christian friendship. And he wrote an, an, an essay called The Materialists in India, the 28th of August, 1884. He's attacking Sir Saeed Ahmad Khan, who has a school in Alagar for training Muslims, but it's kind of secularized. You know, you hear this thing about reformed Islam. Well, what often people mean by that, meaning Western people, mean can't we tame Islam and come up with a tame version of it? So this guy is attacking him for doing exactly that point. And here's what he says. Afghani says, his doctrine pleased the English rulers as they saw in it the best means to corrupt the hearts of the Muslims. They began to support him, to honor him, and to help build a college in Alagar called the Mohammedan College to be a trap in which to catch the sons of believers in order to bring them up in the ideas of this man, Ahmad Khan Bahadur. Ahmad Khan wrote a commentary on the Quran and distorted the sense of the words and tampered with what God had revealed. He was a liberal, huh? <laughs> he, sorry. He founded a journal that was... Tongue in cheek. <laughs> he founded a journal called Tadig al Aklaq, which published only what would mislead the minds of Muslims, causing dissension among them and so enmity between the Muslims of India and other Muslims, especially the Ottomans. These materialists became an army for the English government of India. They drew their swords to cut the throat of Muslims while weeping for them and crying. We kill you only out of compassion and pity for you and seeking to improve you and make your lives comfortable. The English saw that this was the most likely means to attain their goal, the weakness of Islam and the Muslims. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying, wake up and smell the roses. Don't buy their education. Don't go to their universities. Don't believe what they're saying. They're lying to you. And the feelings, the issues that he and others later deal with is humiliation, subjugation, and mockery. They feel humiliated, they feel subjugated, they feel that they're being mocked. And when you come down into the 20th century, you have men like Hassan al-Banna, Saeed Khatoub, the radicals who say the same type of thing with an amplified voice that's been heard in groups of students all around the world. Not, not 
all by any genes the majority, but a significant portion of young people are hearing this radical message today. So which way forward? In the very recent book, the New York Times, many of you have probably read Thomas Friedman's Longitude and Attitudes. He seeks to engage with the depths of feeling, the, the mistruths, the half-truths, the outright lies that are being peddled in the media at times of the Muslim world, and he would say at times of our own uh, at the present time. He said it's not a bright picture nor a hopeful analysis, but it brings home with great force and urgency the dangers of our current time. And if you want to uh, uh, read some interesting literature on it, Dor Gold's book, The Fight for Jerusalem, uh, Thomas Friedman is a good writer as well in many of these, some of these other resources we've given you in your notes. But here's Bernard Lewis, who has spent his life studying Islam and, and traveling and teaching. And, and I find this is a very sad comment, and I don't want to give him the last word, but I'll put it down here, the quote, and then bring this to a close. If the people of the Middle East continue on their present path, the suicide bomber may become a metaphor of the whole region. And there will be no escape from a downward spiral of hate and spite, rage and self-pity, poverty and oppression, culminating sooner or later in yet another alien domination, perhaps from a new Europe reverting to old ways. I don't think so. Perhaps from a resurgent Russia, perhaps from some new expanding superpower in the East. If they can abandon grievance and victimhood, settle their differences and join their talents, energies and resources in a common creative endeavor, then they can once again make the Middle East in modern times as it was in antiquity and in the Middle Ages a major center of civilization. For the time being, the choice is their own. Now that sounds interesting, but it leaves several things out. And that's where we're going to transition as we move into the next session. It doesn't account for God's plan for the nations. The end of Matthew's gospel, Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth is given unto me. And I believe that. Don't you believe that? Brother Andrew said many years ago, Jesus said, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel. He didn't say anything about coming back. And perhaps that's the problem. We need to start getting more serious about what the gospel means, what the gospel involves. We must remember that God loves the Muslims. And let's remember that. I'm afraid that Western Christians today, that we become a little bit like the Jonas with Nineveh. You know how Jonah felt towards the Muslims? As he looked out upon there, it was like, oh God, toast them, burn them, you know, judge them. And that any emotions that we think are perhaps of a negative nature. We need the compassion of God in our hearts. And that may be something that you don't have. You just feel, you know, you're confused or you're scared or things go on. But we can ask God for it by His grace. And you're going to hear stories about what God's doing. They'll give you the other side, that God is never hindered by human structures or man's power. Because God the Holy Spirit is on the move, doing stuff, working, picking, choosing people, calling them to Himself, and bringing His gospel. And His purpose will prosper despite human barriers. Ladies and gentlemen, I know this has been a bit heavy for you, but I hope at least it might get you to do your homework. And as we look to what God is doing in Iran, we can lift up our eyes and thank Jesus that he is on the throne. God bless you. Thank you.